Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, but what I'm going to do in this episode is turn this over to another host, Alex Bernardo of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, which is also part of the Christians for Liberty Network, because he recently did an interview with Ann Perez on the topic of Zionism. And if you've been under a rock, maybe you don't know, but there's a lot of a lot going on in the Middle East right now that has to do with Israel, with Palestine, Hamas the Gaza Strip, there's a lot going on. And it is really important that we educate ourselves before making pronouncements. And I know that you will learn a lot. The other thing I wanted to do with this episode is to share with you that Alex is just such an excellent interviewer and I want you to subscribe to his show as well. And so I'm just going to let this episode be a sort of sampling episode, also timely. I mean, I could have had Ann Perez come on and do an interview with me, but like, seriously, I'm not going to top Alex. So I'm going to play you his episode. And so I really hope you go over to the Protestant Libertarian Podcast and subscribe. I do know that he actually does a follow-up episode on the topic of Israel and violence going on there. So you can go over there and check that out. But here is the interview with Ann Perez by Alex Bernardo. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Ann Perez. Dr. Perez has a PhD in history and an MA in theological studies and specializes in modern Jewish and Israeli history. She currently teaches history at the University of South Alabama. Her new book, Understanding Zionism, published this year by Fortress Press, is a detailed historical overview of the development of modern Zionism, chronicling both the advocates and the critics of the movement and how Zionist ideas have shaped modern geopolitical events. This complex and often misunderstood subject is masterfully explained in the book, and we will be discussing it on the show today. Dr. Ann Perez, welcome to the Protestant Libertarian Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is going to be great. The book is is incredible. But before we get to the book, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work. So I am trained as a historian, as you mentioned in the introduction, and currently doing kind of a smattering of things, teaching history at the University of South Alabama. I tried to do some substitute teaching in the public school system in our area and try to stay on top of some research interests too. But in general, my trajectory started really as a religious studies major in college. And and I took a course on modern Jewish history. And one of the things that struck me in that course was how unique Jewish history was. I had, growing up, uh, very active in my church. I think I always just assumed that Jews would have had the same history as anyone else and that we, you know, the only differences between Christians and Jews was the stance on Jesus as a Messiah. And so to learn that actually Jewish history was both very unique and also very impacted by the church, to me, it it, it impacted in many negative ways. I was sort of drawn to drawn to that in a in a way that I usually describe as like opening a church closet of skeletons falling out. Like I I felt like I needed to somehow figure out how could this have happened that the the God and the scriptures and the church that I knew could have yielded things like, you know, expulsions and 
disputations and, you know, different discrimination and prejudice against Jewish people and, and just oppression and exclusion. So that was kind of my initial draw, like in terms of how could we have had this separate history. But then once I was in that, I discovered how interesting Jewish history was in its own right. I just became very interested in in modern Jewish history itself and then the the rise of Zionism. And through different, I, I ended up getting a master's in theological studies and spending some time teaching in Lebanon. And I, I kind of was sensing that I wanted my professional vocation to have something to do with, definitely something to do with history, but history as a way of building up the church, doing history in some way as a form of ministry to try to get a better sense of who we are, where we've come from, what kind of impact we've had or could have. And so eventually, eventually I decided to get the PhD in history and in that still wanted to grapple with the issue of Zionism and all the intersections between religion and nationalism in that. Uh, And so my dissertation research was on how the Zionist movement dealt with conversion both into and out of Judaism from the beginning of the movement. So in the late 19th century up through the early 1960s was the time period of my research focus. And that was, you know, from the beginning through about a, a dozen or so years after the establishment of Israel and so that was that was kind of the lens that I used to look at, you know, when religion changes, what does that do to the identity, the discourse, the policies of the Zionist movement? And so I was, you know, essentially steeped in Zionist history for the duration of my PhD. And when I finished that, the, I mean, the normal trajectory for a historian is you go on, you get an academic job and publish a monograph of your research, and that's your first book. But just because of where life was, that's not, that's not where I was going. And so I decided I wanted my first book to be something actually that would be usable and a more general access book that people could use to learn more about the subject and enter into the subject because I know from how much I had to explore it close hand, how complicated it can be. So, Yeah. Well, I got to tell you that the book really does a great job of outlining all of those complicated issues. It's like I was saying to you before the show, this is an issue that only within the last year and a half, I've really started to look into. I know that there's always been conflicts in the Middle East and it's so complicated and there are so many factors involved that it's hard to work your way through the maze. And I think that understanding Zionism does a great job of of doing that. You open your book with a series of very important definitions. uh, And I think the one that we might want to define up front is the word Zionism itself, because it seems like in the media, Zionism can be used in a lot of different ways. So how do you define the term Zionism in the book? So I give the most basic, kind of lowest common denominator definition of Zionism as a belief that the Jews are a nation and that they should have some kind of national and political autonomy. That is sort of the earliest definition of the term, and it's the most broad. 
pretty soon after the Zionist movement starts in the late 19th century, it comes to be defined specifically as a belief that the Jewish people should have a state. And the kind of consensus view was that that state should be in the land of Israel. So it's kind of, there's sort of like the most barest bones version of Zionism that the Jewish people as a nation should have some form of national and political autonomy. And then there's the sort of more common vernacular view of that that political autonomy should be a state and that that state should be located in the land of Israel. And so I think that's probably the most common uh, kind of man-on-the-street definition of Zionism, if that makes sense. I think that's a really good, straightforward definition of that. Very good. Uh, And that does help cut through a lot of the complexity here. The other issue that you have to address early on in your book is the complexity of Jewish identity. So a lot of us, when we go to school, we're taught, you know, there are Jews, there are Christians, there are Muslims, and they're all basically the same. But like those of us that are Christians understand that like there are are a million different ways that you can be a Christian. And the same is true of Jewish identity as well. So walk us through some of the complexities of Jewish identity. Okay. Well, so the complexities, the book, and I, I discuss this in the opening of the book. The complexities come from the fact that that Judaism itself has its own definition or definitions of who is a Jew. And then historically, Jews have been in Jewish communities in different—they've had different historical and political and cultural constraints or— Borders, and so the there's both historical definitions of who is a Jew, and then religious definitions of who is a Jew. Historically, I guess religiously speaking, first, according to Orthodox Judaism and according to the Talmud, part of the Jewish scriptures, a Jew is anyone born to a Jewish mother or anyone who has converted to Judaism according to certain procedures. And so that person who's born to a Jewish mother who has converted will always be Jewish. You can't, according to that teaching or tenet, somebody can't decide, so actually I'm not Jewish. The phrase from the Talmud is a Jew, even though he sins, is still a Jew. And so that, that religious definition is there. And as different streams of Judaism have developed, some Denominations of Judaism have taken a broader approach to that. They've had different policies surrounding conversion. They have said that a Jew is anyone born to a Jewish mother or father. And there's not as many, there, there's, there's different understandings of how to go about becoming Jewish. But those are the, the religious definitions of Jewishness. And then historically speaking, this community of Jews has had different laws, different language, uh, vernacular languages, and different historical circumstances. And in that process, those historical circumstances have shaped different cultural traditions and communities. And so in that sense, a Jew is anyone who has can be anybody who has some kind of uh, connection or influence to those to those cultures. 
So for instance, I think maybe the one of the easiest ways to determine that are Ashkenazi Jews are Jews that are from Central Europe, um, Central and Eastern Europe, and for a lot of history spoke Yiddish, um, a combination of Hebrew and German. And so it was considered a Jewish language. It is considered a Jewish language. And so that is one, the development of that language, for instance, is one thing. It, it's not, you know, determined by Judaism, but it is a Jewish, it, it, it's a Jewish cultural development. So in that sense, a Jew can be any of these things, either religiously defined or having been a part of these cultural trajectories and, and traditions and communities. It's not, you know, simply a religious identity. It, for some people, it is very much that is what it means to be Jewish is practicing Judaism. But for many others, practicing Judaism has, it, it doesn't really factor into their own Jewish identity. Yeah, that's a really good, helpful definition. This is one of the things that's going to make Zionism so complex as a historical phenomenon. And there are, I think, there's a popular conception that Zionism really begins with the implementation of the state of Israel and the events of 1947 and 1948. But that's not the case. Zionism as a political movement really gains momentum in the late 19th century. So talk to us about the early history of Zionism and all of the historical forces that motivated it. There were a lot of historical forces motivating the rise of Zionism. The biggest would be the rise of nationalism in general as a political and cultural ideology. This was something that was developing around the turn of the 19th century with the cultural movement of romanticism, with the, the liberal ideas of the sovereignty of a government coming from something other than a monarchy and so the idea that a nation would be best represented by a state, this becomes part of the beginning of, of nationalist movements in general. And, you know, one of the earliest being the, the Greek nationalist movement uh, in the 1820s that broke away from the Ottoman Empire and shaped its national identity based on Greek ancient history, all of the the cultural, you know, infrastructure from from the ancient Greeks, Greek language, Greek orthodoxy, that the idea that Greeks, because they were Greek, should have their own government and not be subjected to an Ottoman Muslim government. This was kind of a, a galvanizing movement in the early 19th century. Other nationalist movements, particularly with Germans and Poles and other places where there were a lot of Jewish communities, just the idea of nationalism in general was, was one influence. Another really major influence of, for the rise of Zionism was the Jewish Enlightenment, which is known as the Haskalah, which just means it, it's in the Enlightenment. And that was going on from the late 18th century into the 19th century. And people who, uh, they called themselves Moskilim or disciples of the Haskalot, were taking new approaches to, to Jewish religious texts, to Jewish education. They were starting to put more emphasis on what would later be called like biblical criticism, understanding the development of the biblical texts, 
the original languages, and also opening up the possibility of of educating Jewish children towards other secular subjects and not just religious education. So this opened up the approach towards the Hebrew language, for instance, as a more scientific or literary language and study instead of just a religious study. And so that was a a really important precursor to then the Zionist movement that wanted to develop Jewish national identity. The Hebrew became a really important part of that. Up to that point, outside of the Haskalah, Hebrew was still considered it, and by many today, considered the holy tongue. It was only to be used um, for devotional purposes, for reading Torah and prayer. And so the fact that the Haskalah started treating Hebrew as a literary language, that, that, that was a really significant shift. And so with the rise of nationalism, with the Jewish Haskalah, and then also the rise of political and racial anti-Semitism, this was something, I mean, anti-Semitism is uh, as old as Jews have existed. But in the 19th century, in Europe in particular, there was the emancipation or the process of Jews attaining the same political rights as the other citizens of the places they lived. And this these this change brought about a lot of reaction and at the same time different ideas about, you know, pseudoscientific theories about racial differences and national ethnic differences led to a a more racial and ethnic and national version of anti-Semitism, whereas before anti-Semitism was like a very religiously based thing, the growth of racial anti-Semitism, basically it started to pose the problem for many Jewish thinkers that, you know, we have never been more, we've never had more rights in the societies we find ourselves in, and it's in that context that we see, you know, we've never seen more vitriolic anti-Semitism. And so the conclusion reached was, you know, if we can make it this far and still encounter this much opposition, we're probably better off forming our own, our own nation, our own state. But yeah, I mean, the, the idea that at the late 19th century, there were political movements based on anti-Semitism in Europe, this was another motivating factor to, and many Jews were asking, you know, what are political alternatives? Yeah. And even, even from the beginning, there is not like a monolithic opinion among Jews as to how this Zionist movement ought to proceed. And you highlight several different types of Zionism that arise during this period. So could you explain the different branches of Zionism? Yeah. So early on, the main branches of Zionism are generally described as cultural Zionism, political Zionism, labor Zionism, and then the less influential at the start of the movement, religious Zionism. So cultural Zionism was kind of the original Zionism. It was a movement to, like I I said earlier with the Haskalah, to develop Hebrew as a literary language, a language of journalism, a language of education, and the focus on 
on building up cultural characteristics like education, journalism, literature, poetry, developing that cultural component was where actually the term Zionism came from. It was one of these Hebrew writers that coined this term. And so cultural Zionists wanted to emphasize trying to reclaim and develop what was specifically Jewish about the Jewish nation. And that often really relied on Hebrew. Some of them were very derogatory towards the growing Yiddish literature movement that was happening at the same time. And also cultural Zionists emphasized the the role of the land of Israel in Jewish history and also the role of the land of Israel in the development of the Zionist movement. And so it was many of these cultural Zionists who thought it was important for Jews to establish communities in the land of Israel, which was at the time part of the Ottoman Empire, Ottoman Palestine, and have a direct connection with that land and the seasons and the you know ancient cities that were part of Jewish history, to have that connection that was culturally important. So for cultural Zionists, that was the goal, was to try to reconnect Jews to this part of their identity. For political Zionists, and this became, political Zionism became like the vehicle for the Zionist movement. In 1897, Theodore Herzl founded the Zionist organization, and Herzl himself and a lot of his colleagues and the organization, they emphasized diplomacy and financial investment and statesmanship and other kinds of political gains that could be made towards obtaining a what they call the national home and are often called the state. So some kind of autonomous uh, government, whether that was part of a bigger government or it was an unindependent state, people debated. But, but the goal was creating an autonomous governing unit for Jews that would be, you know, a place that both Jews facing anti-Semitism would be able to emigrate to, and it would be kind of the international face for the Jewish nation. So for political Zionists, the cultural aspects were generally not as important. Sometimes they were considered maybe a liability for the movement that they wanted to present the Zionist organization as, you know, as the term went, a nation like all of their nations. So there were a lot of clashes among these early Zionists because a lot of the earliest Zionists were cultural Zionists that viewed the establishment of political Zionism as kind of selling out, of, of putting these political benchmarks ahead of cultivating national identity. And Herzl famously, you know, speculated that the Jewish state would probably speak German. And, you know, a lot of the colleagues were just horrified at, at the lack of, of Jewish content content of Herzl's plan for a Jewish nation. So you, ha- you have all those factors coming together. In the run-up to World War II, you know, there, there are a lot of people within the Zionist movement that are pushing to make Israel a distinct nation. What do the Arab nations and the Palestinians in particular think about Zionism at this time? So, so I saw that question, and 
So you, you specifically asked about World War II, right? Not World War I? Yes, and, and the Rom so yeah, before World War II. Yes, correct. World War II, okay. I, I ask because World War I is actually like a, a pretty watershed point in terms of Arab perspectives towards Zionism. So I think that it'll almost be easier for me to answer that question in two parts, like how they felt before World War I and then how they felt before World War II. Because before World War I, the, the land of Israel was part of Palestine, or it was part of the Ottoman Empire. There had been Jews living in the Ottoman Empire since, well, some Jews since antiquity. There were, you know, despite the fact that the Romans expelled Jews from Jerusalem, there were still Jewish communities in, in Roman Palestine in, in different cities. So there were small communities that had always been there. But then in the 15th century, there were the mass expulsion from Spain, and many Spanish Jews, Sephardic Jews, ended up settling in different parts of the Ottoman Empire. And so the Ottoman Empire had Jews. There were some Jews within the Ottoman Empire who were even becoming involved in the very new and developing Ottoman political movement. And so there wasn't Zionism itself. There, I mean, there were a few intellectuals that you know, we have on the record publishing skepticism about the implications for the rise of Zionism. But Zionism wasn't really, I think the average person either wouldn't have known about it or would not have given that much thought. I have, during my research, I found this really amazing image because, you know, I looked at religious conversion. And so I, a lot of my sources were from like missionary organizations in Palestine. And one was of a, a mission school somewhere in the Galilee, and most of the students were Jewish, and they had a class picture. So it was for a Christian school, and this class picture of children, on one side they had the Ottoman flag, and on the other side they had the Zionist flag. And somehow that combination of identities and loyalties and obligations just coexisted, and it, it, it was a really— amazing image, but I think it also just shows that there wasn't, you know, th there were many different political ideas. And for, for the average person, Zionism wouldn't have been a big influence. By World War I, when the British conscripted or cooperated with some Arab forces to, to resist the Ottoman Empire, once the Ottomans declared war, the, the promise was that they would have some kind of political, national independence in the event that they won. And so when the peace treaty determined the post-war arrangement and the Arabs were not given a state, but the British specifically issued the Balfour Declaration giving explicit support for the Zionist movement to have a national home in Palestine. That's when the mistrust started to like really mobilize. And by the 1930s, after during the British administration between World War I and World War II, there was enough resistance among Palestinian Arabs against British rule, against the growing Jewish political uh, institutions, and the growing the growth of Jewish Im Jewish immigrants to Palestine, that by the 1930s, there was violent opposition. 
and a series of uprisings. That violence, it calmed down a bit during World War II, but that mistrust and the separation of political goals had already been in place throughout most of the British administration. So Israel becomes a state in 1948, but this is going to raise a lot of very complicated, both practical and political questions. What are the challenges that are posed by Zionism after the establishment of Israel? I thought that was such a fascinating question because the way you worded it, or what are the challenges posed by Zionism? So not what are, not what are the challenges to Zionism, but what challenges does Zionism itself pose? And in a way, the answers to either one of those are are very interconnected because the promise or the goal of Zionism to have a Jewish state immediately raises the question, uh, what does a Jewish state mean and how, you know, how is that attained? And then it's made even more complicated in the context of Israel in that Israel declares its independence as a democratic state. And so there is this challenge and balance between what it means to be a Jewish state and what it means to be a democratic state. So that's, I mean, that really was and continues to be one of the big political and social debates and challenges from the beginning of the state to this day. Hey, folks, I just want to take a break from our episode to ask you to consider becoming an LCI insider. We want everyone to feel engaged and excited about what LCI is doing. And the best way to do that is if you become a monthly supporter at $20 or more per month, you will become what we're calling our LCI insiders. You get some free gifts. You get an exclusive Crisis King magnetic lapel pin. We give you two copies of Faith Seeking Freedom. We send monthly ebooks months ahead of when they're released on our public website. You can get discounts on our swag on our online store, and you get exclusive invites to our quarterly live streams with the LCI staff. In addition to that, whenever we do publish something like a physical book like Strangers with Candy, we'll also send you those as well. So the best way to stay up to date on what we're doing and to support what the Libertarian Christian Institute is doing, including supporting the podcast you're listening to right now, is to become an LCI insider. So to do that, go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate and then choose recurring monthly gift and you'll be added to our list automatically. Thank you for your support and I'll let you get back to the podcast. From, I guess, the time that I was in elementary school and became aware that there was a world outside of Kentucky, you know, <laughs> I, I always remember there being conflict in the Middle East. And so reading it, it's very interesting because, you know, I, I, I was I was like 10 years old in 1999. So I remember a lot of these events that you talk about in your book that happened in, you know, the, the new millennium. So from 1948 mm-hmm. on, maybe walk us through some of the major events and this tension between Israel navigating as both a democracy and as kind of like a Jewish ethno state. How mm-hmm. has that played out over the last 60 years. So in 1948, there's a war when when Israel declares its independence, immediately the neighboring Arab states mobilize for war. And that war goes off and on for almost a year. So with the armistice of that war in 1949, there are different policies. So I'll say during that war, a lot of the inhabitants of the region fled. A lot of the Palestinians living in the area left. They left to, I mean, there's a massive historiography about this. And so anything I say is going to feel like painfully oversimplified. But, 
you know, most people left to avoid the combat. So a lot of those Palestinians, you know, vacated while war was happening. And then once Israel was established and the armistice was signed, there were laws put in place in Israel that would not allow most of those people who had left during the war or before the the war to return. And so that was already kind of a potential challenge to the the democratic nature of the state that former residents were not able to come back. And there were also some who were called internally displaced. They went to another part of Palestine. And then even though they were still in what became the state of Israel, and so they became Israeli citizens, they couldn't go back to whatever village or town they lived in before the war. Uh, and so that that was one challenge. And the Palestinians who did become citizens of Israel, most of them were put under a military administration. And so having dual administration for some group of citizens and then the, you know, quote, main group of citizens, that th- there were, you know, some constituents constituencies in Israel that saw this as a challenge to the state's democratic nature. So there's that challenge on the ethnic side of what does it mean to be a Jewish state and a democratic state, and what does that mean for the non-Jews within that state? But then there's also a religious component about the relationship of the state to its Jewish identity, and that mostly comes it it mostly manifests in Israel's policies on personal status so marriage divorce inheritance conversion and from the beginning of statehood Israel agreed to have personal status law administered by re- the religious leadership for the most part in these communities that was it, it didn't create that much of a radical conflict but when there was a conflict, it became very evident that having r- a religious administration within a democratic state can raise some problems. And so at the beginning of the state, that mostly centered on the issue of personal status. But things have changed since then. And some of the biggest shifts in Israeli history, and you asked about kind of the the main stages of Israeli history. So if, you know, 48, the the 40s and 50s was the creation of the state. 1967 is, of course, another huge turning point because there's another war between Israel and the neighboring Arab countries. And at the close of that very quick war known as the Six-Day War, Israel has a lot more territory. And so then the question of the territories that Israel controlled after that war added another, you know, huge layer to questions surrounding Israel's uh, democratic nature and Jewish nature. And then in the 19th, in the 70s, there's the first kind of political reorientation in Israel for most, from 48 to 1977, Israel had a left-leaning administration that worked with different minority parties. It's a parliamentary government. And so there were coalitions, but the leading political party was left-leaning 
and secular leaning. And then in the 1970s, there's a shift toward the Likud party, which is more right wing and more willing to work with religious groups. And so since the 1980s, religious parties in Israel and religious constituencies have gone from playing a big role in personal status to also playing a big role in government coalitions and the different policies that these coalitions set. And so that's, I mean, in in this past year, Israel's seen a lot of protests and, and social conflict and also legislative changes and possibly even more consequential legislative changes. So the and the question of of religion and the state is a big part of that. It's really interesting that there are so many American Christians that are supportive of the Zionist movement. And I, I've always been aware that there's been like a certain strain of dispensational eschatology that requires Israel to re, be like become a nation state again in order for the Messiah to return. So I understand why those people would support Zionism. But in your book, you talk about how there are many Christians that support Zionism for reasons outside of eschatology. So walk us through the reasons why there are Christians in the United States today that are very supportive of Zionism. There are a lot of reasons, the, and you mentioned the eschatological part of that, but there's sort of four main categories that I've identified and I talk about in the book, which are the dispensationalists who are, as you said, more oriented towards eschatology. But then there's also been a lot of support for the state of Israel in particular as a an expression of the fulfillment of biblical promises. And so in that sense, I think that there's a lot of Christians that view the creation of Israel in 48 as a fulfillment of many of these prophecies that we read in scripture. But and then there's a humanitarian motivation for Christians to support Israel. And in the first Before Israel was established, that almost entirely focused on Jews who were experiencing anti-Semitic persecution or who were living in poverty. And so, like in the 1880s, at the late 19th century, that was mainly Jews from the Russian Empire. And most of them came to the United States because there was a huge increase in physical violence towards Jews and, and, and also just a lot of poverty. And so a lot of them came to the U.S., but then there were those who went to Palestine. And either way, at the time, a lot of Christians thought that having, creating a country where those Jews would be able, would be allowed to flee, that that was, you know, a a humanitarian concern. And then, of course, with the rise of Hitler and his anti-Semitic regime, and then eventually the Holocaust, then it became even more pressing for you know, there to be a safe haven, a place for just literal escape. The other type of Christian support for Zionism is what I've called civilizational. And that is the idea that that Christians have uh, a an obligation to support Israel as a Jewish state, mainly to act as a curb, preventing an expansion of like an Islamic civilization. And I, I, I mean, I could maybe say more of, about any of those, but those are like the general genres of Christian support for Zionism. 
Yeah, and I, th- I thought that was really interesting chapter, and you followed up with an explanation actually kind of in the opposite direction of groups that are vehemently anti-Zionist. And there are a lot of surprising, there are a lot of surprising characteristics of many of those anti-Zionist movements. So walk us through some of those. Who are some of the, the people or the groups that have been opposed to Zionism? There's kind of a spectrum. There's, I, I think you could have a spectrum from left to right in, in terms of opposition to Zionism. On the left wing of anti-Zionism are those who, I mean, at the time that Israel was established, this was also a really, there There are a lot of movements for anti-colonialism and like third world movements that viewed Israel as an oppressive entity or an imperialist influence from supported by Western countries. And so there's opposition to Zionism as like a settler colonial state that oppresses the Palestinians and is aligned with other oppressive settler colonial policies from the United States, for instance. So that's kind of the left wing of opposition to Zionism. On the far right wing of opposition to Zionism, there's the belief in anti-Semitic conspiracies about Jewish world domination or attempts to, you know, control the world or control different governments. So the perception of Israel as like a manifestation of that and opposition to to Zionism in Israel as an expression of that is kind of the extreme right. In the in the center, and again, all of these kind of have different gradation. In the center is you'll see a lot of what gets called anti-Zionism, which is typically opposition to Israeli control of the territories from the 1967 war. And so some people who oppose holding those territories would be opposed to the idea of a a Jewish nation state altogether. Some are still supportive of the idea of a Jewish nation state, but just within the pre-67 borders. That would kind of be in the center part of this spectrum. And then there is a contingent of people opposed to Zionism on religious grounds. A lot of religious Jews at the beginning of the Zionist movement really opposed the movement and even threatened to excommunicate sympathizers with Zionism because it was considered heretical that only the Messiah should be, you know, reconstituting the Jewish people as a nation in the land of Israel. And so any attempt to do that, it would be either like heretical or just futile. And so there is still small groups of like ultra-Orthodox Jewish anti-Zionists, but they're kind of not on that same spectrum that I mentioned from, you know, left wing to right wing. And yeah, I mean, there's different groups within all of those. I don't know if you had like specific questions about any of them, but th- that might be like the most basic way I could explain it. 
Yeah, I think I think that was a really good summary. And to me, it's it's so complicated because it's it's kind of like Pandora's box. We can't go back to a world before 1948. And so there's no way that you can erase the last 60 years of history in the Middle yeah. East. And there have been many different propositions that have been made to try to solve the tensions between the Jews and the Palestinians. Uh, you know, I guess the two most popular are the two-state solution where there's, yeah. uh, you know, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. And then also kind of like the bi-national state, which I guess would, would compromise the the Jewish integrity of Israel, but that would lean more towards the democratic side of of their of that statehood. What would a binational state look like? And like what are some realistic objectives that would lead to peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians? How do you think we how do you think we resolve or settle this problem with regards to Israel? So that is like truly the million dollar question. (laughs) (laughs) And I do have to say, I mean it's strange because I've you know, done a whole dissertation about Zionist history and written this whole book summarizing the history of Zionism and the different perspectives. But I personally, you know, I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Palestinian. And in a lot of ways, I, I, I kind of like bristle against trying to answer that question because I feel like I don't have the same stake or I don't know, just challenges. Like I, I, and I almost don't feel like I have the right to try to answer that question. But with that said, I think, like, objectively speaking, some kind of binational state would definitely require, and really actually any form of statehood moving forward is going to need, like, a constitution. And that's something I I talk a lot about in the book, because when Israel was established, the Declaration of Independence stated that a constitution would be written by the end of the year, and then within two years— the administration decided, you know, we need to put a pause on this because if we officially enshrine either the role of religion in our state or if we officially exclude the role of religion in our state, then that is going to have a very destabilizing effect. And so so to this day, there's not a constitution. There are what are called basic laws in Israel, which kind of carry constitutional weight, and in theory, they form the bones of the future constitution. But there have been Israelis throughout Israeli history, and even more recently emphasizing, and I talk about some of the different proposals for constitutions or movements that are trying to emphasize creating a constitution. And so Israel almost certainly needs to eventually do that. And that's why the the current political situation in Israel sometimes is even referred to as the constitutional crisis because the prime minister is trying to do with the judicial branch. And because there isn't, you know, that official structure, we're seeing that there's a lot of potential instability there. So in any case, a constitution is probably going to be necessary no matter what. But in the, in the event of a binational state, a constitution that's very hard to change is probably going to be a really important part of that because the big fear is, you know, declaring all the land from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, just one like potentially happy country and moving from there. The fear is that everybody will still operate as a citizen of that country from their national perspective. And so, so then it would just be like a numbers game, whoever had more would then be able to dictate the policies of the country or the character of the country. 
So with the Constitution, that would ensure the preservation of both national identities so in a, in a binational state that would require like a supermajority for certain changes. So there couldn't be just a simple majority to revise the, amend the Constitution to no longer allow both nationalities, for instance, that it would, that there would be, you know, specified national rights. I mean, there's a lot of different models that people have proposed, but all of them would, would rely on that. I mean, I also think that it would involve a lot of just intercommunal education and the, there there would be a, a lot of educational and social work that would have to go into it and a, and a lot of probably allocate different allocations of resources. I mean, it's it's it really is a huge, a huge issue. So in, in your estimation, as we, as we come to a close here, in what ways do you think that Zionism has maybe been a force for good? Like, what are some of the positive consequences that have resulted from it? And then on the flip side, what are some of the negative consequences that have resulted from Zionism? And then finally, where do you see Zionism headed in the future? Like, what direction is the Zionist movement headed going into the, the middle of the 21st century? I think that there has been a lot of good that has come out of it. I mean, I look at the founder of political Zionism, Theodore Herzl. And I mean, he had really expressed a, a lot of the early Zionists like so eloquently and, and painfully expressed the, the social marginalization that so many Jews at the time had. And so Zionism was a way, I, I think it did a lot of good in creating a, a positive national identity and instead of you know trying to downplay their jewishness zionists would embrace it and explore it and i think that that zionism made a space for that and so i think that that was a positive thing then and i think that you know that's still a positive thing now i think from the standpoint of from like a humanitarian standpoint and political standpoint, I, I think that it there have been some negative consequences. I mean, I, I mentioned the the refugee crisis that came out of the 1948 war and the establishment of Israel and the displacement of Palestinians, and then also like their exclusion, and that was you know at the founding of the state, and then only magnified with the 1967 war and the Palestinians living in those territories. I don't know. I there's that's kind of like my answer as a as a scholar. I I think the the dangers of Zionism are probably very similar to the dangers of any nation state arrangement. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, Dr. Amperez, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining all of this to my audience. The book is Understanding Zionism on Fortress Press 2023. Excellent book. Highly recommend everyone pick it up. Where can people buy the book and then where can they find your work? The book is available really anywhere online, Amazon, bookshop.org, uh, and you know Fortress Press directly. But you should be able to Google it and you know, some website will let you buy it. And my work can be found, my, a lot of my research articles are on my academia.edu profile. So if you 
search for me on academia.edu and Perez, um, you'd be able to find some of my academic work. I've started a blog that I can't promise will go that far, but it's on Substack and it's called Let Justice Roll Tide. Oh, nice. Because of the Alabama reference. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Dr. Perez, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm going to put uh, links to all of that in the, uh, in the show notes for people to go and find your work. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com, you click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50 and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished.